you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. And now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. What's up, everybody? DJ Bucky here. Move the Sticks. Less than a week away from our travel to Indianapolis for the NFL Scouting Combine. Buck, what's going on? Not too much, man. Just trying to knock out some of these last guys uh, to make sure I'm fully prepared for the combine. A lot of interesting guys kind of popping up when you kind of dig in the tape. Not just the notable guys, but the guys that could be sleepers that we'll talk about when we leave the combine. Yeah, no doubt. It's a fun process where I am. I've got some uh, some secondary guys to look at. I'm kind of finishing up the, the safeties in the corners and then uh, hoping to have that wrapped up by this weekend before we uh, we get ready for the combine. So, a lot of tape work still to be done there. We've got some ground to cover on the pod today, Buck. We've got some uh, some latest news around the NFL, a couple Steelers uh, topics we'll dig into, um, as well as want to talk about the future of the Combine, where that's headed, what's, uh, what's that look like, how is scouting going to change as we go forward. Uh, I'm going to look at the offensive line and tight end positions, what we'll be looking for in those workouts when we look back at some of the top workouts over the last uh, few years and the top position players. So uh, some ground to cover there as well. Uh, but I think we start right here at the top, Buck. Just kind of some of the some of the more breaking news, I guess. Le'Veon Bell not going to be tagged. Your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised that he's not tagged. He didn't show up last year when he had the opportunity to play on the franchise tag. Um, I mean, look, $14 million that he walked away from, that is tough. And I don't know if he'll be able to make it up, but he was trying to stand on principle. Um, I think the bigger thing when it comes to the combination of Lev- Le'Veon Bell not being there and then Antonio Bryant, Brown probably being shipped off. Um, I think the Pittsburgh Steelers obviously had a culture problem in the locker room, and I think this is an opportunity for the team, the head coach, and the general manager to kind of reassert themselves, reestablish the culture of the locker room, try and get back to being a little more um, team-oriented. And I'm not necessarily in the camp that Le'Veon Bell and A.B. were um, selfish to a fault. I'm just saying that the chemistry, for whatever reason, didn't line up with Big Ben, A.B., and Lev Bell. So they're all in and committed that this is Ben Roethlisberger's team, for better or for worse. He's 37 years old. He has kind of been anointed as the leader of the squad. And I know a lot of the people around Pittsburgh, the fans and stuff, kind of appreciate that and maybe like that because he's the quarterback. But I will say, as a flawed leader, I just think that if he doesn't mature as a leader, and I don't know how much you can mature at 37 in terms of leadership, but if he doesn't mature, this team will never reach the heights that they could have reached and they potentially can reach in the future with him as the quarterback. Yeah, I mean, I just the, – the tough part about this from, from our perspective on the outside is when you hear, you know, this whole leadership discussion and what's good and what's not good for that locker room, it's just hard to know the dynamics of each of these – individual places you know we kind of go off what we hear and, and, and what you see reported um, but I don't know I don't know what Antonio Brown was like to deal with in there I'm not trying to give Ben a free pass um, you know but it's just it's hard it's just we, we get incomplete information you know what I mean mm-hmm. to, to go all in on that topic no I think and, and I think and I will say this regardless of how they acted individually collectively it didn't work mm-hmm. collectively it wasn't working when you just 
go back and we just look at the last year and the things that we have seen. Uh, Le'Veon Bell doesn't show up. The offensive line kind of takes issue with him. A.B. misses practice days because he may have uh, had a protest because he didn't get balls head in his direction. Big Ben then says later that Juju Smith-Schuster is a number one, and if he could, he would throw to him all the time. Like just so many conversations and so many kind of like back-channel discussions that you just don't hear from good teams. And I think it kind of goes back to what we said last year when the Philadelphia Eagles won it and what we continue to say this year when we look at the Patriots. Regardless of what we say about the talent on your team, the puzzle pieces must fit and the culture of the locker room has to be right. And if those things aren't aligned, no matter how talented you are, you're not going to win the championship. I think it's interesting if you kind of went team by team, and if you look at every organization like a pyramid, you know, who's at the top of the pyramid for each organization, you'll find different answers in terms of the roles, right? I mean, you can look at the Patriots, no question. Bill Belichick is at the top of the pyramid. He runs that show. That is his operation. Everybody looks to him as the leader. He's the guy. Uh, you look at the Dallas Cowboys, it's the owner, Jerry Jones. Jerry mm-hmm. Jones is the one that has is at the top of the pyramid. Uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, it might be Ben. You might have a player that's at the very top of the pyramid. And, 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 and to me, that is crazy. And I do wonder coming out of that, and I'll say this point blank, like for whatever reason, the Pittsburgh Steelers fans have a love-hate relationship with the coach Mike Tomlin. Uh, Mike Tomlin is one of the most successful coaches in NFL history. Yet, if you listen to the outside, if you follow the Twitterverse, they will tell you that he sucks or that he's not uh, a good coach or that he is underachieved with what he has been dealt. And Bill Cowher and those other guys would have won more or whatever. I I mean, I can't dispute it because it's hypothetical, but I can say that this dude is on track to do some of the stuff that Don Shula and others have done in this league. I will say, though, that a team is ultimately the reflection of the head coach. And I am a Mike. Tomlin fan I was considering him a friend but I will say he is very very emotional and sometimes when you have an emotional coach you have these emotional ebbs and flows when it comes to the team when we look at the Patriots I don't sense that Bill Belichick is a very emotional guy he is more of a stoic um, analytical type and I think his teams kind of reflect that and so I think this is an opportunity for Mike Tomlin to re-examine his own leadership style, and as he's rebuilding this team on the fly to make sure that this team really reflects what he believes in and that he can kind of take control of the locker room much like Pete Carroll did a season ago when he let a bunch of guys go. And the team kind of went back to what the core and the essence of what he believed in, and we saw them win games. Mike Tomlin has a similar challenge. It's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my next point was going to be, to me, they have two options really going forward with this team. Either you're going to bring in a new head coach with kind of the current group and hope that you just kind of tweak the formula a little bit. You know, okay, we're going to bring in a new head coach and hopefully this existing older core that we have, maybe we can try and get, you know, maybe we can squeeze one more out of this out of this current group. Or if you're going to move forward with Mike Tomlin, you did a great job of laying out his resume and where he stacks up historically with some of the greats. If you're going to move forward with Mike Tomlin, to me, I think it is a Pete Carroll reset. I think it's let's reset the roster. Let's make this message be new again. And the way you do that is you bring in a bunch of young players that are going to be hearing these messages from from Coach Tomlin for the first time and try and reboot this thing with him as the focal point, him as the leader. Um, I just don't know. I, I cannot be 
uh, optimistic, Buck, about what's coming back on the roster, what's leaving the roster, the turmoil that exists. And I keep coming back to it every time we talk about the Steelers. Munchak is huge, man. You lose you lose an offensive line coach like that, that is huge. So uh, I don't know. It, it From the outside looking in and you look at where Cleveland is in their process, where Baltimore is in their process, um, you know, we'll see what Cincinnati does. And they've got they've got a new head coach in there. Maybe that brings them some life. But I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great about it from the Steelers' standpoint. And, and the the last thing I'll mention, the other kind of uh, area of this story, and this is kind of what's come out over the last couple of days. Did you see the report from Manish Mehta from uh, the New York Daily News saying talking about Le'Veon Bell and free agency? He's been he's been paired with the Jets by a lot of people. Makes sense. Need to give Sam Darnold some help. But, Buck, he said the quote, the quote, word on the street, the old word on the street, is that Lev Bell has gained 35 pounds during the offseason and was up to about 260. And when you think back to the evaluation of him coming to the draft process, he played in the 240s, 245, I believe. And we all – I know I did. I know a bunch of people did. Viewed him as what do you want, a second-round pick. He doesn't have a lot of juice, uh, but he's a powerful, instinctive runner. Gets to the NFL, lo and behold, he drops 20 pounds, Buck, and he was a different football player. So if that weight really has fluctuated and they, somebody gets a picture or some kind of evidence that he really did put on 35 pounds, that's going to cost him a boatload of money. It will cost him a boatload of money. I have a hard time believing that he would gain 35 pounds knowing what is on the line and also knowing um, what he's kind of put himself on in terms of the spotlight. By sitting out this year, he has put it all on him where he is public enemy number one. Everyone is looking at his every move. If he has allowed himself to get out of shape, obviously it's a red flag. Coming out of college, I compared him to Steven Jackson. That's who he reminded me of when I watched him at Michigan State. He reminded me of the former Oregon State star and the Ram star for a long time. Big, physical, powerful guy. He completely remade his body and changed his game to the point where he became ultimately the ultimate weapon at running back, a guy who could play as a running back but also make plays as really a quasi-wide receiver. If he has allowed himself to get big and he is no longer that dynamic threat, he not only cost himself money, but he's kind of taken years off his career because I believe that the way that he played the last time we saw him uh, would allow him to age gracefully, that even if he lost a step or two, he still would be a guy that could split out and give you contributions as a receiver and some of those things. But, you know, all bets are off when it comes to him and not being able to show up in shape and those things. So we'll see. We'll see if he gets the payday that he desires. We'll see if it was all worth it. I think the bigger thing with the fascination with the Pittsburgh Steelers situation, the fallout, I tweeted yesterday, addition by subtraction could actually work for them. But when I look at this division, Cleveland and Baltimore, you talked about those teams being well positioned. I mean, this division to me is wide open. And even though I am ready to say, hey, Cleveland could make a move, how do the Browns handle being the team that was kind of climbing up the hill to now everyone is expecting to be at the top of the hill? Can they handle the little level of success that they had last year? And how do they respond with a new, well, an interim head coach now as the new head coach? Yeah, people in new roles there. Um, no doubt, uh, with Freddie Kitchens taking over as the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Um, one thing I would do, free advice, I believe I believe uh, Lev Bell still rep by Adisa Bakari, who, who reps mm-hmm. our buddy uh, MJD. He's repped a lot of the top running backs in the league. Adisa, I would blast out a uh, quick video uh, within the next probably 24 hours of Lev Bell playing basketball or Lev Bell throwing a football on the beach, 
just some way where people can see his body type and and just kind of eliminate the whole he weighs 260 pound thing. I I would I would get something out on that quick. Yeah, no, I think I mean that's that's, that's something that certainly has to be done, and I think um, what you have to do is you have to be able to kind of handle some of this because some of this is done to drive down the price to kind of put like a little black cloud over to make it uh, an issue uh, one where we kind of talk about him in a negative light so yeah that would be a great PR plan to go out there show him working out show what he looks like to put a thing on since he's so media social media friendly put a thing on Instagram let people know what you really look like what you've been working out what you've been doing uh, and where you are in the process because that is the big thing when you have a year layoff you do wonder how long will it take for him to shake off the rust and given his issues in the past, uh, particularly with injuries and stuff, you want to make sure that he shows up and reports in tip top state. Yeah, no doubt. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the future of the combine and uh, before we get to talking about these offensive linemen and tight ends, but we've talked about this in the past about virtual reality, you know, how we thought that would be the wave of the future here. You know, getting these guys in the interview rooms, putting on the, the virtual reality glasses and, and uh, headset or whatever you want to call it, and being able to look at defenses, see what they see. You know, for a quarterback, take us through your read, and you can watch what they're looking at. Um, you know, call out the mic, whatever. You can mm-hmm. do whatever offensive lineman, defensive lineman. You could get a really, really cool uh, look, and that could be an advancement there in scouting at the combine. The other thing I was thinking of the other day, talking to, to a buddy with the team, you know, this zebra technology. We had it at the Senior Bowl. Uh, where they put the uh, the GPS stuff, and you can really track. They can tell you who's run the fastest MPH of, of all these players. And I just wonder, you know, to be the most accurate uh, representation, and are we going to five years from now, maybe it's a little bit longer than that, we get to the combine buck, there's no stopwatches. We're just going to say how fast can they accelerate, and you'll be able to look at their, their acceleration from 0 to 10. What's their peak miles per hour over a certain distance? Um, you can watch them go through the whole workout. You'd be able to monitor their heart rate, um, their ability to decelerate and change direction. All that stuff, there's the technology is already out there where we could we could be able to capture those numbers and those images and, and 40 times and, and three cones, all that stuff, it, it's going to be irrelevant. We're not going to use stopwatches anymore. We're going to have the technology to real-time track how these guys are performing and, and be able to track their heart rate and everything else to go along with it. Yeah, because uh, the stuff that you're – bringing up the zebra technology being able to get an accurate gauge on output acceleration uh the heart rate those are the things that are already being done uh in soccer leagues over 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 in europe like they they have always been ahead of the curve when it comes to gps nfl teams nfl teams are doing it for their own guys at practice but we haven't incorporated into the evaluation process you know it, it would be something like if we're really talking about evaluating players and doing that obviously i think it'd be a cba issue and you have to kind of work through that part of it. But I do believe if you want to get a gauge on the real explosiveness and you want to take the human element out of it, yeah, that technology is there. And I think years ago, uh, maybe Under Armour was sponsoring or outfitting the guys, and they put kind of the stuff on I the shirt. That. I remember one yep. year where they could kind of track it and monitor it. But now you're talking about zebra technology and the way that we have kind of easily um, kind of fallen in love with the analytics and the data and the numbers, yeah, I think that would be something to, to certainly watch when it comes to the other players. And as in terms of the virtual reality piece when it comes to quarterbacks, that is something that would be really, really interesting because it would be fascinating to know what they really, really know. And if you are a team, and maybe in your room, and maybe we'll see teams in their room kind of do some of this where they're putting virtual reality coverage 
uh, asking guys to make reads and do things based on what they know from college and kind of figure out how quickly they pick it up. That stuff is is fascinating. I can say that uh, years ago in Elite 11, when we had the young quarterbacks, we did some of these things and kind of were able to conduct extra practices or get them extra reps and monitor how they progressed when it came to reads and decisions and that stuff. I would be surprised if it's not a big part of what teams are doing in the combine privately and eventually becomes a public thing where everyone knows that all the quarterbacks are going to go through some kind of virtual reality evaluation. I mean, and we look at, you know, how how does a guy throw, um, you know, with accuracy and anticipation? Well, I mean, you can – and velocity. You could be – baseball, they talk about spin rate. They have that technology where they can tell you exactly how many – Revolutions. revolutions the ball is having who curveballs who's got the tightest curveball it used to be just kind of a you just say he's got a tight well what is a tight curveball um, they have the technology to give the precise spin rate you can be able to have the technology we've seen it uh, last year with some of the stuff that Dilfer was doing mm-hmm. um, when the ball leaves the hand the technology exists once that ball comes off your finger your fingertip you'd be able to tell okay the ball is released from his fingertip and I can look before the receiver is out of the break I can be able to actually put numbers on that and quantify that with, like, how much anticipation is he really throwing with? Um, th- that information's all going to be out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is going to be out there. I, what we're trying to do is you want to take some of the subjectivity out of the evaluation, and the way that you can do it is by using the data and the technology to really help you. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, Old school guys may have a tough time doing it, but I can see the younger, hipper general managers and scouting directors wanting this information and wanting to have the ability to take what we call that hard data and to be able to match it up with what we call the film work and the eyeball test and to do that. And I've always believed the teams that are able to really have football minds who can really understand the analytics are going to be the teams that begin to separate themselves from the others. Yeah, next-gen stats. I mean, you've done a bunch of stuff with the next-gen stats we have at the NFL level, which is really cool uh, to be able to look at things like separation. I remember I think you were one of the guys using that technology, using that information that was readily available early on in the process where you kind of anticipated and predicted the decline of Des Bryant because you were looking at it saying, look, Mm -hmm. he's like one of the worst in the league in terms of getting separation. We can say, I don't think this guy can run. Uh, That's an opinion. What's not an opinion is he gets less separation than any wide receiver in the NFL. That's a fact. Like That's the type of information that we can see going through the scouting process, not just having access to it at the NFL level. Yeah, those things are good. I, you know, and I, I, I use next-gen stats a lot when it comes to, to writing and looking at the game and understanding the various different things that it can bring, whether it's the personnel grouping or individual performance or the quarterback hit charts where quarterbacks are throwing the ball and once they put the chip in the ball and that other stuff, then we really get a gauge of uh, some more stuff. And so it is fascinating. I think if you just kind of marry it like that data with football stuff, I think you can make some advances, and I think you can be one step ahead of the curve. And we have seen how it has impacted baseball. And I'm not saying that football and baseball are sports that are similar when it comes to that, but we're seeing how the analytical decisions are driving some of the uh, – some of the way the game is played in baseball, I do believe analytics can enhance and impact the way the game is being played uh, in the National Football League, and it also can enhance what we're trying to do from the scouting perspective. No doubt. Uh, It's uh, going to be fun to watch which teams kind of get to the forefront on this, you know, and uh, 
Uh, I'd be interested to know, like CBA-wise, I'll ask around to some buddies, but you know what, the, they have these local workouts. So for those who don't know, you go through the combine process, people have their pro day, and NFL teams are not allowed to just bring anybody into their facility and have them work out for them for the draft. But you have a local workout, meaning players that grew up, if you're the uh, if you're the Los Angeles Rams, Los Angeles Chargers, the teams that grew up, or the players that grew up in the city of Los Angeles or attended college, I believe this as well, right? Attended college. I think, there. yeah, I think it's like the, it's the 75 mile rule. So I think yeah. there are some local guys and guys, if you're in a 75 mile radius of the metropolitan area, you can show up. Yeah, and maybe it is, it might have even just been high school. I don't know if it was college, but be high school. You can bring those guys into your facility. Um, and the, and you can put them through a workout. I wonder if at those local workouts, if you can outfit these guys, if the CBA allows it to outfit them with some of that zebra technology to be able to track some of those things. I mean, that would that would be great. You know, that's how the Minnesota Vikings were able to find Adam Thielen uh, mm-hmm. at a local workout, and many people didn't know about him. That would be a great way to discover. Um, Maybe not draftable guys, but maybe some of those height, weight, speed guys that we typically like to put on the training camp roster to just see what will happen if they get an opportunity in the league. Being able to put that technology, the GPS stuff, the monitoring stuff, to just kind of see the explosiveness and the fitness level. Because I think when you talk about the heart rate, that does speak to the fitness level. Um, To be able to look at some of those things. Look, you you should always be trying to find any edge in a league that is very, very competitive and the parity is there. You need to be able to kind of use some of the technology advances to kind of give you just that that, that little edge that we're all looking for. Yeah, it's going to be fun. You know, I just can't imagine what it's going to be like when we get to the point at the combine. um, And they probably have somebody collectively bargained where we can see as the public – you know, you can see the real-time numbers as they're coming in on all these guys and not having to wonder, you know, how explosive is this guy? Well, here you go. He was running 21 miles an hour within, you know, blink amount of time. I mean, it's going to be – that would be fun to track. It would be fun to track. I think the only thing that, that you would have to do is it would then take a football person to be able to kind of break down those numbers. So, hey, 21 miles an hour would probably equate to a guy that is running 4-4-3 yeah. over the course of a thing. Like, And I don't think that is necessarily a hard deal is looking at some guys that we have numbers on, like a Deshaun Watson. Like we know what he runs. We know what he ran at the combine. And being able to take, oh, well, in game – his miles per hour are this. So that kind of puts you in this range in this bucket. If we do some of those things, I just think it will give us a better understanding exactly of what the player is and what he's bringing to the table. Think about this, and I could go on this forever. We'll move on after this point. But um, we talk about, again, with baseball, pitchers that maintain their velocity, they maintain their stuff deep into a start. We run, we run 240s. They get a long break between them. You know, that's not the way the game is played. You're going, you're, the game is moving, you're running. How about being able to track through that workout? Okay, we're running a couple takeoff routes early in the workout, then we're going through the rest of the route tree. At the end of the day, does he maintain, can he maintain his speed? Is he strong enough to maintain his speed at the end of a 30, 40-minute workout? I think that would be the thing. I think the thing would be like beyond the 40s, uh, having that technology to be able to monitor how explosive they are throughout the course of the route tree being able to see this is how fast he was at the beginning when they're doing those quick outs and speed outs and those things. And here's where he is at the end when we're asking him to run the goals and the deep post corners. Does he have the endurance 
to be able to maintain a high level of speed and explosiveness throughout the course of a 30 to 45 minute workout. I think that is something that would be invaluable because we've talked about the story of Jerry Rice and people talk about, well, Jerry Rice only ran four six, but he ran it over and over and over, over the course of the game. And so when you look at some of these players um, and let's use Todd Gurley as an example, because it came out yesterday that they felt like Todd Gurley wore down at the end of this season. So let's see which guys are more susceptible to being, uh, worn down at the end of workouts, at the end of games, at the end of a month, two months, three months into the season. You want all of that technology because it not only lets you know what the player is, but it's the information that the coaches need so they understand how to better utilize them. Yeah, and also will help with injury prevention, no doubt. Uh, and that's one of the reasons the NFL teams use that technology in practice, be able to say, we need to back off this guy. He's exerting a little bit too much energy. Uh, so it, it's cool. It's going to be fun to see where the technology takes us on the scouting side of things. I want to jump in. Tight ends, offensive linemen, a couple things we're looking for here at the workouts. I mentioned this. I'll be talking about this a bunch um, during the combine coverage, Buck. Went back and uh, through our buddy Jack and research, was able to pull the top ten players in different uh, categories in terms of uh, receiving yards, passing yards, whatever, and then put in their combine information just with the top ten. Not trying to, uh, you know, a lot of teams will do this with the league average starter, and make those the numbers and the guidelines they're aiming for. Who wants to be average? Let's take top ten guys, and let's aim to find something in that range. So when you look at the tight end position, and we go last year off of receiving yards, and just list those ten guys down, and then we put in their height, weight, 43-cone vertical bench, um, this is what the numbers spit out here, Buck. So let's go with the average of those top ten guys. What what does that top ten tight end look like? Uh, when we go to Indianapolis, what, what's kind of the numbers you're looking for here? The average, 6'3 and a quarter, 246 pounds. Um, the, uh, the 40, oh, sorry, six, the average, take that back, that was the, uh, that was the minimum. The average, 6'4 and 7 eighths, so almost 6'5, six 6'4 six and 7 eighths, 253 pounds, just over 250, with a 40 of 4'6'4. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty darn good number. Three cone, seven eleven. So just hovering right around sevens where you want to be. A vertical uh, average, thirty five. So you see that explosiveness carry over into the vertical. And the bench is twenty one, which is you know kind of what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. You don't need Hercules out there to be blocking anybody. Um, the uh, the outliers, if you want to look for who the high guy, who the low guy was, in terms of those uh, tight ends that were in the top ten in receiving yards, the fastest one. Uh, Jared Cook, he ran a 4.50 coming out. Uh, saw what mm. he did last year uh, for the Raiders. And the slowest of the bunch in terms of receiving yards at the tight end position, Kyle Rudolph, as you'd expect. 6'6", six, six, then an eighth. He's the tallest guy, 259 pounds. He ran 4.83. And his three-cone was the was uh, second to worst as well. He ran a 7.24 on the three-cone. So that's kind of the range of what we're looking for at the tight end position. Man. I I think of all the ones that you pull out, I think you hit the right position because this year the tight end class is absolutely loaded, I think. Um, I think there are a ton of guys that can come and make immediate contributions. I think the league is trending where multiple tight end sets are becoming increasingly more popular. Um, And if you can have a guy that is a difference maker at the tight end one or tight end two spot, it really enhances um, your quarterback's ability to really play and control the middle of the field. When you spit out those average numbers, almost 6'5", 253 pounds, 4'6'4", is kind of moving moving. for a big guy. Uh, The 7'11", three-cone, to me, that is all about the change of direction and being able to create separation, getting in and out the break. 35-inch vertical, that leads me to think about the red zone. 
and being able to win those 50-50 balls on fades when you have them displaced against a smaller defensive back. And then 21 reps on the bench, even though it's not necessarily functional strength, you do have to have the ability to kind of control the line of scrimmage on the edges when you are involved in the blocking game. And so what we're looking for at tight end, we're looking for basically jumbo wide receivers who can block like offensive linemen. And so those numbers kind of bear that out. The one interesting one to me is um, you're trying to look for where are they close aligned. The three cone is good. I I prefer, for those who don't know, it's kind of the the L-shaped drill. It's a change of direction drill. Um, the short shuttle is is just you're working on one plane. The three cone is a little trickier. Um, you can really see if you're loose or you're tight. That'll that'll uh, that'll show itself in the three cone. It's great for pass rushers. Uh, also tight ends. These guys. I mean, let me just roll through the numbers here. Kittle seven flat. Kelsey seven oh nine. Ertz seven oh eight. Uh, Ebron seven four nine. That was the worst one. Uh, Gronk seven one eight. Think about that. Six six and a quarter at two hundred and sixty four pounds, and he ran a seven one eight on the three cone, which is silly. Uh, Hooper seven flat. Uh, Njoku was six nine seven. Jimmy Graham six nine zero. Kyle Rudolph was seven two four. So the majority of those guys right at seven. That's kind of the target you're looking for. Yeah, that is a target you're looking for. You remember we used to get all of these numbers. Now it's been jacked up a little bit because now guys are really training for these events and they kind of become yeah. uh, Olympic medalists by the time they get to Indy. But um, there is something to the ability to be able to change direction. And when you take the three cone and combine it with the 5 shuttle, it does speak to the balance, the body control, and short area explosiveness when it comes to evaluating the athlete. Um, I am always curious when you see those big guys, I want to see them run those drills because you want to see the bend. Are they flexible enough yeah. to get out? Or are they big, lumbering, stiff guys that don't have the ability to kind of create that separation that we all know that you need to get open in this passing league? Um, this is a fascinating discussion. And the fact that you brought it to tight ends is something that is right in my wheelhouse because when I'm I'm looking at the stuff um, this year's class with the tight ends, I do believe they're guys that we're going to talk about. And I think we're going to see a changing of the guard at the tight end position because Rob Gronkowski obviously is fading out. Travis Kelsey is a guy that is in the mix. You have Zach Ertz. But then we saw the likes of Dallas Goddard. Uh, we saw David Njoku show up. Uh, we saw some of these other tight ends kind of make appearances in, in starring roles. It is a great time to change the guard because we're getting these big-time athletes that are playing the position that are these hybrids that, you know, we talk about being able to block like offensive linemen but run like wideouts. If you have a couple of those guys on your squad, it's a huge advantage when it comes to creating mismatches. All right, and then we get to offensive linemen here. I'll break it up between tackles and interior offensive linemen. And, again, I I have this broken down by the all-pro team, but just to get more numbers in the mix and for a way to do it, um, if you just grab and, look, I'm not always in alignment with, with a pro football focus on offensive line grades. But for the purpose of this exercise, I thought, okay, let's grab their 10 highest-graded offensive tackles, 10 highest-graded interior offensive linemen. We might disagree on a name here or there, uh, but these are good players. So when you look at those averages, Buck, at the tackle position, 6'5 and a half, 312. Um, the arm length, which is big, 34 and a quarter is the average. Uh, 40 is a 509. Um, and then uh, we get to the three-cone, 769 bench of uh, 26. And the interesting thing, I was talking to a general manager the other day, and uh, said, you know, everybody always kind of laughs at the 40 for offensive linemen. When are you going to run a 40? Everybody makes their jokes. It's stupid. It doesn't correlate to football. He said, "He said this was a while ago. It's been a couple years. We did a study on it. And he said, absolutely 100%. The 40 ended up being one of the highest indicators 
uh, for success when they were looking at offensive linemen. So they, they their teams really, really believe in the 40. Now, whether you guys going to run 40 yards in a play or not, I don't know. Uh, not going to happen very often. But it does show you a little bit of stamina, shows you some of that initial burst, and can they carry that? Um, there is, it's not a throwaway number is what I'm getting at there. That was for the uh, the tackles. When you go to the inside guys, interior players, a little bit shorter, as you'd expect. Average 6'3 and a half. The weight, 304, uh, which I thought was interesting. And we think of interior linemen and, and try, okay, big, you know, big hefty guard. Last year we saw Quentin Nelson, obviously, at 325 pounds, quickly emerged as one of the best, if not the best, in the NFL. Um, but the average there, 304, 33-inch arms, so considerably shorter. That's the Jonah Williams debate. Um, it's going to be easier for somebody with the short arms to kick inside. The number, though, I want to focus on, 518 for the 40, uh, the three-cone. And then talking to some offensive line coaches around the league, this one is a number that they are very, very interested in. 7.56 was the average. And I talked to a, a different coach who said 7.55 was what they targeted. Um, the three-cone for the interior offensive lineman, much more important than for tackles. Because if you think about it, there's a quick read and react and, and, and quick change of direction. So, you know, you tackle, you could even have a tackle that doesn't that doesn't quite change direction as, as quickly or as explosively because it's the same, it, predominantly in a pass set, they're taking the same exact set, they're meeting the same launch points, and they know where the engagement point is. With, an off, with interior guys, you don't know where that's coming from. You don't know what stunt's coming, where they're moving, how you're working together with your guys inside. That being able to read, react, and quickly change direction was much more important for those interior players, and that was a number they've come to over the years, um, was you, you want those guys to be at 7.55 or below. That was their target. I, can, I, I think it makes sense. Um, when it comes to evaluating interior blockers, guards, and using the three-cone as a barometer. Because remember, depending on the scheme, whether it's zone or a gap scheme where you're doing a lot of pulling and asking your guards to uh, come around the edge and do some lead blocking around the corner, that requires the ability to be able to get out of this dance, turn and run, be fast and change direction. The three-cone kind of reveals all of that. So I would like a lighter guard, a guard that could move so he can execute some of the things that are very, very trendy in the league today. I want to go back to the offensive tackle. What what were the height and the dimensions that you, you mentioned again for offensive tackle? Yep. Did you say 6'5"? Six, 6'5 five? Six, five and a half, 312 pounds. So that was the average. 6'5 and a half, 312 How? with 34 and a quarter inch arms. 34 and a quarter. Um, that does make sense because so often in this process we're, we'll – talk about, hey, man, this guy needs to kick inside or um, he needs to play guard. He's, he's, he's not long enough to play outside at tackle. And people kind of give us a hard time. Like, why are you measuring arm length and hand size and those things? But if you're doing the numbers and you're really studying the science of the draft, and no one says that uh, we or scouts get it perfectly, they dead on. But what you want to try and do is you want to try and eliminate the outliers. You want to try and kind of create a standard where, like, look, the majority of the league or the top guys in the league hit these numbers. And those numbers mean something. So when we talk about Jonah Williams, and this is going to be the d- debate for him, is he good enough to play outside? Maybe. But would he be better inside? Possibly. So when he measures out, and if his arms come in at around that 33-inch range as opposed to 34, 35, it could be problematic for him being on the outside because the guys that he's facing, potentially like a Montez Sweat or if we use a current pro um, like a Von Miller, they have the length to do some of those maneuvers that will prevent him from getting his hands on them and he will be at a significant disadvantage. 
That is why these numbers matter. And I think people need to keep that in perspective when we kind of crack jokes about the underwear limits and how it doesn't necessarily play a role in the evaluation. It does, but it shouldn't uh, be considered more valuable than what we're doing when we look at the tape. Yeah, we want to take it – again, we use the phrase, you want to take the guesswork out of it. So we use the phrase in scouting, he's a clean player. What does that mean? A clean player means he's hitting – all of these standards. So these are kind of the industry standards you're looking for. And he comes in and checks every single box there. Then if you get somebody, traditionally, my experience, Buck, you get somebody that's a clean player in terms of all these numbers who's productive and and, and excellent on tape, so you like what you see on the football field. He aces the interview test. He aces the background when you roll through it. Now you've got somebody to say, okay, our chances are pretty darn good. I mean, mm-hmm. the fail rate here is extremely low when we have a clean player number-wise, on-the-field-wise, and, and personality football character-wise. Yeah, I mean, like, there are a bucket of things that you want your top prospects to be able to meet. To meet. And when those guys meet those things, you feel better about them, especially taking them at the top of the draft. When you get lower in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds, you know that they want – hit all of those boxes, and you understand that. But for the top guys, you absolutely want them to kind of check off all the boxes, which is why the debate at quarterback with Kyler Murray is going to yeah. be fascinating. He's because not a clean player. He might be a great player, some, but he's not a clean player. There are some people that are going to have a tough time getting past the measurables part and to focus solely on his game. It is also why, to the surprise of many of us in the community, Baker Mayfield was not a unanimous number one selection on the outside because we couldn't see that, look, he doesn't check off certain boxes when it comes to the measurements. He can't be the number one. But we're seeing the league is changing, but how much of the league is changing to kind of allow themselves to kind of make exceptions to some of these things that have been traditional staples when it comes to the measurements. Yeah, it is very interesting when you look at it. Um, just looking at those numbers, you can go through all these different positions and you can kind of find who the standard guys are, uh, who you're looking for. So, uh, look, that's part of the process. I think that's a fun part about scouting. You've got what you see on the tape, the most important aspect. We've talked today about where the future of scouting could be headed with some of the technology involved and then also the combine, being able to find the numbers and, and kind of those standards that you're looking to hit. It's all kind of it's, – it's like jambalaya, man. It all kind of comes together in the evaluation process. Yeah, it does kind of come together. But um, I I think it's important that in spite of all the numbers and in spite of all the excitement that we shared and the the technology and being able to look at these things in buckets, it still comes down to can they play. Don't manufacture a player based on checking off the measurements. Make sure that he is able to play on tape and you feel good about what he's able to do on tape before you fall in love with his measurements and the dimensions that that are revealed at the combine. No doubt. Last thing, and this is on a different position, but just I'm thinking of this going through these DBs, Buck. I don't know where it's ever been harder to evaluate corners than it is right now based on the way the college game is playing. I see, I'm just watching all these guys. I see a bunch of quarter coverage. I see butts to the sideline, shuffle, shuffle, bail. Um, even when they get up and press, they're bailing 90% of the time. So in terms of being able to see these guys flip their hips, being able to see them pedal, which some teams aren't going to use that as much anymore anyways, but just being able to see the change of direction – uh, and see them be able to plant and drive. You just don't get as much um, exposure to that in the college game as you used to. So it's made that evaluation harder. I think the, the workout, the combine workout for corners has never been more important uh, than it is right now because of the way the game's being played. It is very tough. I was looking at corners uh, this morning before coming in, um, doing some stuff for Path to the Draft that we're going to do 
next week, and I was looking at the top guys and trying to put them in buckets in terms of where they fit. Are they outside players? Are they nickel players? And looking at a guy like Trayvon Mullen from Clemson, yeah, uh, he he's a tougher. He's one of the toughest guys to do for me. He's one of the toughest ones because he's nose to nose a lot, but a lot of times he's not pressing. He's bailing out. And yep. what you're trying to do, like teams will will tell you this, and you talk to enough directors and general managers, they'll tell you, uh, fit in scheme is more important than anything. Like, how does this guy fit into the scheme that we want to run? And for defensive backs, it is critical maybe more than any other position. You need to know, is he a guy that is a man corner? Is he a press corner? Is he a zone corner? Can he slip slip inside and play nickel? Does he have the foot quickness and the what I call the technique versatility to play in a scheme that is more than just, hey, we're nose-to-nose press team or, oh, we just always sit off? Mm-hmm. You have to examine a lot of things, and sometimes the tape doesn't give you enough where you can get those answers. And so you do have to go on the road and work them out. You do have to look at the combine tape and see how they transition and how they flip the hips and how they speed turn or how they are able to execute the W drill. And even beyond the combine, you then have to work them out on their pro day to see if they can do some things that are very specific to the way that you want your corners to play. It's tough. It is tougher now than ever when it comes to evaluating because of the way the game is being played at the collegiate level. Yeah, I see a lot of wheel turn, man, when I'm watching when I'm watching these dudes. Where it used to be, able, they just always would flip and open up. Uh, now they'll swing all the way around, and it's just. And I'm just like, is this guy fluid? Can this guy open his hips? I don't know. They don't do it. No, they they don't. You don't get a chance to see him play off. I think for me, I have a greater appreciation for guys that can sit off at eight or nine yards. Uh, can key to three-step, can backpedal, can transition, break and drive on things in front of them while also being able to handle stuff that goes behind them, Mm -hmm. while also being able to make multiple moves if they have to cover a post corner, all of those things. Um, Defensive backs would tell you they're the best athletes on the field. And in essence, you really need to be a decathlete to play on the perimeter. You're trying to see that, but sometimes the film doesn't give you enough information to really make these solid evaluations on what a player is and what he could be at the next level. Yeah, well, it's a challenge we all got here in uh, in the scouting community. It's a big challenge for teams. But, again, if you know what you do and you know what you're looking for, it makes it a whole lot easier to go find it. So that's the challenge for those teams. They've got their uh, at the Combine next week in Indianapolis. Anything else you're uh, you're working on, Buck? What can we promote here? Man, just trying to put together this notebook, a little mix of college and pro, but I got to kind of start turning all my efforts to the college and the draft because no matter how much stuff and buzz we're hearing about free agency, the combine's coming, and it is a bear to tackle. I was hoping during today's show the Padres would sign Bryce Harper, but it has not happened. I guess we have to just stick with our one $300 million player. I mean, I, I can't wait to see how many wins it leads to. Hopefully y'all will be relevant beyond – May. 2020, Buck. <laughs> Patient. 2020. It's all coming 2020. together. 2020. It's all Jeez. happening. Uh, all right. Hey, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you guys for listening to the Move Sticks podcast. We're going to have you covered uh, really wire to wire there at the Combine. We will have a preview offense and defense. Uh, you're going to look forward to that, I promise you. Uh, we'll have you set up. Know, uh, know what to be looking for there in Indy as we continue on Move the Sticks. Appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for downloading Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. For more, go to NFL.com slash podcasts. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. 
That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish spring body wash and bar soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. 